From the United Nations in Bonn, I am Leonie Beck. And I'm Monja Sovagia. And we are the hosts of Inside UN Bonn, your podcast about the people and stories behind the United Nations in Bonn. Today is the International Day of Clean Air for Blue Skies, and we're hosting our colleague James Kresik from the United Nations World Health Organization. James is a technical officer for communications at the Bonn-based WHO European Center for Environment and Health in Bonn. The World Health Organization, abbreviated WHO, is the specialized agency of the United Nations responsible for international public health. While it is headquartered in Geneva in Switzerland, it has six semi-autonomous regional offices and 150 field offices worldwide. The European Center for Environment and Health in Bonn is part of the WHO Regional Office for Europe. It develops policy advice and international guidelines, including on air quality and noise, to inform and support decision-making by governments, health professionals, citizens and other stakeholders. James, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> so last year, the United Nations celebrated the first ever International Day of Clean Air for Blue Skies. And this year's theme is Healthy Air, Healthy Planet. Can you explain what air pollution exactly is? Sure, I can. It's a good place to start. <laughs> Just to clarify what it is we're talking about. Air pollution is any contamination in the air that we breathe. And in many cases, it will be a mixture of different contaminants. And those contaminants can be of a chemical, physical or biological nature. And these are contaminants that modify the natural characteristics of the air. There are particular contaminants which we're most sensitive about because they have proof that they actually have a health impact. And those are particulate matter, which is very often referred to as PM, ozone, particularly ground level ozone, or what we also refer to as tropospheric ozone, nitrogen dioxide, sulfur dioxide, and carbon monoxide. Interesting. And what is the difference between these PM? Particulate matter is probably the, the more unusual one out of those contaminants because it's very often classed in two different classes, um, what we refer to as PM2.5 and PM10. And this has to do with the size of the particle we're talking about. So PM2.5 is any particle that's smaller than 2.5 microns or, or micrometers. And PM10 is particles up to 10 micrometers. Of particular health concern is the fine particulate matter, it's the, the PM2.5, because these very fine particles can penetrate deep into the lungs and into the, the, the airways of the body, and they can actually enter the bloodstream, which as a knock-on effect has like severe implications for respiratory system and for the cardiovascular system. Particularly of interest, I would say, is in 2013, the WHO International Agency for the Research on Cancer classified particulate matter as being carcinogenic. So this is also another reason why, from a health perspective, it's it's the one that we're, in a, I wouldn't say most concerned with, but it's definitely, it's, uh, it's one you probably read about the most. Yeah, that does sound worrying. What and who are the largest contributors to air pollution? Talking of the sources of air pollution, where it comes from, there are many, many different sources. And we, you can see this even just how, you know, as you walk through your daily life, where, where do you come into contact with air pollution? Some are natural. Obviously, something like a volcanic eruption could cause air pollution or dust storms. But, but many are at what we call anthropogenic, as in they, are, they come as a result of human activity. And it's particularly those are the ones that we try to tackle because those are the ones that we effectively have control over and that we can do something about. And here we're talking 
energy sector, transport sector. So obviously we're all aware of traffic and the impact that that has. In some countries, this is more relevant is domestic cooking and heating as well, um, especially if it's in indoor burning, but also just how houses are heated. Waste and dump sites, industrial activities, obviously, and also one thing that people sometimes forget is also agricultural practices. One of the most important aspects of all of that, which links sort of goes across all of them when we talk about transport and energy generation is the incomplete combustion of fossil fuels, for example, is the is one of the major contributors. There's a lot that we can do to try and reduce the impact on air quality from these human human activities. And globally, air pollution is the second leading cause of death from non-communicable diseases after tobacco smoking. Um, and I was shocked when I read that number. How come the number is so high? It is true that air pollution is estimated to cause millions of deaths every year, but also what we talk about lost years of healthy life, years where you could be ill due to due to air pollution. The major impact, as I sort of hinted at when we were talking about particulate matter, is what we call non-communicable diseases. These can be long-term chronic diseases of uh, respiratory diseases or cardiovascular disease, and that create a health burden. But also, if we talk about children, because it can influence them at such long age, and that it becomes a cumulative effect over the course of their of course of their life, it can actually then have significantly increased impact on on children's health. And WHO estimates that around seven million deaths, mainly from these non-communicable diseases, are attributable to the joint effects of air pollution. The evidence suggests that between four and nine million deaths every year and hundreds of millions of healthy life years are lost. And while well, you've spoken now about non-communicable diseases, can you name some examples of diseases that air pollution causes? Yeah, from respiratory diseases, there's many. It could be asthma, it could be COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disorder. Cardiovascular disease is, is a family of diseases that are related to, to the heart and to, to blood circulation. There's, I'm not going to go through the, the whole list, but it's these are diseases that are in particular as a result of long-term exposure. One of the interesting things with air pollution is a lot of people, it, it will hit the media when you have acute events. So it often hits the media when you have a smog event or you have in certain parts of the European region when you have all the burning for winter fuel or as we have experiencing um, this summer as we've had forest fires and so suddenly there's a, there's an impact. So suddenly people then get very interested in and start talking about the issue of air pollution. But what's the, one of the most important health impacts is actually the long-term chronic exposure. And it's not just these short-term acute events, but it's the, really the long-term exposure to health pollution, which actually causes these, these long-term health problems. I have to admit, when I think of air pollution, I stereotypically think of like cities in South Asia. I lived in Nepal, for example, and the city of Kathmandu had some really serious issues. Um, the same was when I was in Delhi, when I spent some time there. People would wear masks because of air pollution, not because of COVID-19. And they sometimes wouldn't leave the house because the pollutants were so bad. But you mentioned already that air pollution is a global problem. And how is the situation here in Europe? As you've just mentioned, the, the issue of air pollution is not homogeneous. It's very different across the world, and it very much depends on the concentration of these particles. And for example, if we're talking about PM2.5, 
these concentrations can vary substantially between different cities, between different regions. I guess an, an interesting statistic is more than 90% of the global population in 2019 lived in areas where these concentrations exceeded WHO guidelines. Wow. Which is, yeah, yeah. 90%. Some of the countries with the lowest levels are actually in the region of the Americas and in the European region, but those levels are still high enough to have public health consequences. So even though they're like the lowest overall globally, they are still high enough to actually have health impacts. And obviously this is still an area for work. For people who are interested to know what the situation is locally, well, the WHO together with um, several partners set up what's called the Breathe Life campaign. And it's very easy to find. You can just type Breathe Life, one word, into a a search engine. And you have the option of actually you can just type in your city and it will actually give you an indication of how the air quality in your city ranks or fits vis-a-vis the air quality guidelines. But it also goes on to give you some tips and ideas about what it is that that we can all do to try and help and tackle all these problems. Not only is it awareness raising and advocacy, but it's also like everyone needs to actually play their part and do something to to support this. So you happen to live in Bonn. Have you looked up how the situation in Bonn is? I did. If I type in it into Breathe Life, I think it comes up as uh, 14 micrograms per cubic meter. And just to put that into context, the 2005 air quality guidelines would set the limit at 10. I would say we do have pretty good air quality Mm -hmm. here. This is what I mean. Even when we look at these regions where they essentially have good air quality, in many of those urban environments, it will still breach the level of what the WHO sets as being the level to actually, that that potentially could actually have health consequences. Last year, this was actually different for a short uh, time because of the COVID-19 pandemic. There was a short-term reduction in concentrations of air pollutants across cities. And European data for some cities has shown that a reduction of around 50% and in some cases up to 70% was the case. How did the lockdown measures contribute to cleaner air? Could you explain this a bit further? This is actually an interesting observation, let's say. During the pandemic, there's been a lot of impact on human activity for obvious but also unfortunate reasons. And the reduction that you're particularly talking about has been particularly prominent in the case of nitrogen oxides, often referred to as NOx. And this is a pollutant that's particularly relevant to traffic. So obviously one of the most common activities affected by lockdown has been mobility and traffic and people commuting to work. And as you've just said, this this reduction of around 50 and in some cases up to 70% is actually specifically in NOx concentrations compared to pre-lockdown levels. I mean, obviously we have to consider that COVID-19 has been a tragedy, but at the same time, the response measures have given us a rather unique opportunity to see the direct impact of human activity on air pollution and in a certain way maybe also give us a little bit of hope showing us how much control we genuinely do have over it and in a short term literally in the matter of months can see the this almost immediate change which has actually mm-hmm. been very very substantial how to move forward from there is that particularly in the un we, we're very much talking about building back better and we also have the who manifesto for a healthy recovery from covid19 And its primary prescriptions are in that manifesto are talking about the vital importance of clean air and the right to breathe clean air. So when we're looking at, we've had that unusual opportunity to see those effects and actually see the impact that we have on air quality. I would say what's very important now is 
as we are now shifting in our society and there's a lot of discussions about how we move forward and how we build back that we actually we literally do build back better into a cleaner and healthier environment air pollution not only impacts human health but also planetary health and climate change how are efforts to improve air quality connected to enhancing climate change mitigation so i really like this question because i think uh, sometimes when when people talk about a particular technical topic they they just focus on the one topic but i think air quality is an interesting topic because of the multiple different impacts it has obviously i'm focusing an awful lot on the health impact but it also has an impact on our environment and it has a direct link also to climate change so if we consider just about any activity whereby we're reducing the the emission of air pollutants we're probably also by nature of that also reducing greenhouse gas emissions so obviously you will end up then by reducing air pollution you will be reducing greenhouse gas emissions and thereby contributing to climate action and mitigating greenhouse gas emissions but you will also end up improving health but also by contributing to climate action and the fight against climate change we're also protecting our future health so it's almost like a triple win and we're improving air quality we're improving our fight against climate change and both of those will have an impact on improving our health just to illustrate a little bit how that works is some air pollutants particularly what we call black carbon which is a component of particulate matter and also ground level ozone are what we call short-lived climate pollutants so also directly by by reducing those two pollutants which have a direct health effect as a result for air pollution we would also be removing those pollutants which are short-lived climate pollutants um, from the atmosphere and contributing towards climate mitigation yeah so i think this is very a very strong action we, we're also coming up to the next the next round of the un climate negotiations and this is definitely an angle that we are we're very keen on from the who of course we always try to argue climate change is also a health issue and we need to fight climate change not just to protect the planet and us but also our health and the health of future generations and air pollution and the the, the interlinkages with air pollution is just yet another argument that we're that we're able to use to support that action so i assume the who will also travel to glasgow this fall for the climate conference Uh, right now, it's difficult to say travel. We don't know. Sure. <laughs> But yes, WHO um, has pretty much since the beginning or been involved in the climate change negotiations and presenting health arguments for climate action and also trying to push and advocate for the health sector to be more vocal mm -hmm. as definitely a voice for negotiators and the policymakers on just another reason. This is why we have to do something. Uh, you already mentioned air pollution is the largest environmental risk to global public health. It is estimated that 92% of the population is exposed to polluted air, causing an estimated 7 million premature deaths each year. But of course, it is really difficult to prove that the death of a person was caused by air pollution. However, in December of last year, a court in London found that pollution and in quotation mark, made a material contribution to the death of nine-year-old Ella Adu Kisi Debra. What impacts might this first formal recognition of air pollution as contributing to the death of a particular individual have? So what we can say is that there is evidence that we have substantial, solid, robust evidence that air pollution has an impact on health. 
And it has an impact on what we call morbidity and mortality, which in common language means illness and in death. And although this particular case is unusual, that air pollution was formally recognized as a contributable cause of death, it's not unique in the sense that the impact of air pollution on health is a ubiquitous problem. There are millions of people all over the planet that are having their health and their lives affected by air pollution. And I think that's the point that we need to remember. It's not, it's not about just the individual. It's also it's about populations. It's about millions of people all over the planet. And this was a case in London. What are some strategies European cities and nations can apply to prevent or counter air pollution? And how effective are they? There's a lot of things, a lot of concrete activities that countries, but also coming down to local authorities, um, that can be done to actually improve air quality. I've talked about already the many different sources of air pollution. So obviously it's a multi, what we call a multi-sectoral action. You, you've got to, you've got to look at the whole picture and you've got to have targeted interventions and, and activities in each of those sectors. One would be reducing smokestack emissions. It's also something about increasing the use of renewable resources in urban centers. It's about prioritizing public transport and non-motorized transport. So, for example, facilitating bicycle use, clean and efficient fuel for cooking and home heating so that um, in some communities they're not burning coal inside, Uh, waste reduction. And as, a, as I've also already mentioned, agricultural practices. One of our major areas of work is not only compiling the evidence, but it's also working with our member states to actually work out in a particular country. So it's going to vary in different countries what the major sources are and who the major emitters are to actually then work out, first of all, identify where their priority areas of action should be and also to try and come up with plans and support them on, on how they can actually do that. At the same time, also providing them with the tools and resources to make those assessments. And we actually have a very well-known tool called AirQ+. A country can actually, or a policymaker can can use that to quantify the health effects of air pollution. But as a result, you could also then, you know, by showing a reduction in air pollution, you can actually show, quantify the health improvement. There's often an argument, it's a similar argument that comes up in climate action, is it costs money. But the point is, is if we can show that that cost is offset by an improvement in health in a population then in the long term we can actually show that that investment was worth it it's very interesting um the bond-based european center for environment and health will soon launch the new who global air quality guidelines can you tell us a bit more about the guidelines and the impact that they might have yeah sure so the guidelines are probably the most famous well-known component of the, the who work on air quality WHO is well known for its guidelines. We call this our normative work where we help countries sort of set standards for certain things to protect people's health, such as drinking water or air quality. Or recently, we also had environmental noise. In the area of air quality, since the mid-1980s, our office here in Bonn has coordinated the development of a series of air quality guidelines, which provide guideline levels for the pollutants that we were talking about, which would result in a significant reduction in risk of health effects. So at what levels would we need to try and achieve to have minimal to negligible impacts on health? We also have to bear in mind that sometimes these guideline levels are very ambitious and they should definitely be seen as a goal to be working towards. But at the same time, we also help countries by also setting what we call interim targets. 
So these are these are stepwise targets that they can aim towards in their driving for this ultimate goal to achieve WHO guidelines. Because we've got to be realistic. You're not going to do this overnight. It's going to have to be a, a process of a long-term tackling of the problem through through long-term policies. So yeah, so the, these guidelines, they have these guideline values for particulate matter, ozone, nitrogen dioxide, sulfur dioxide, carbon monoxide. The plan is that these guidelines are not legally binding, but they provide a sort of a robust evidence-based health resource for countries to then take that as a basis to be able to then set their own national standards, which themselves then are legally binding. As the new update is actually going to be published very shortly which is going to be the first update in 15 years. So it's really taking into account 15 years of new research so that these are solidly based on that evidence, which can then feed into national policymaking. All right. Well, in that case, everyone look out for the update on the air quality guidelines. And thanks so much for joining us, James. It, it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Inside UN Bonn. The music is by Tim Moore and the design and visualizations of the podcast were done by me, Monja Sauvager. Thank you to the German Ministry of Foreign Affairs for their generous financial support in making this podcast happen. We will be back soon with more human stories from the people behind UN Bonn. To find out more about UN Bonn's 25th anniversary and the stories behind UN Bonn, please visit www.unbonn.org. On Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, We are at UN Bonn. Please take the time to review us because it does make a difference. Until next time.